Well, hello everyone and good evening. Uh, my name is Sanjay Popat. I'm a consultant medical oncologist at the Marsden and professor of thoracic oncology at the Institute of Cancer Research. Um, I'm delighted to host this evening's BTOG webinar. This is the third in the series of webinars that we've been doing in recent times. This evening, we're going to be discussing the abstracts that were presented only a few days ago at the World Lung Cancer Virtual Presidential Session. I'm delighted to be joined by a number of excellent guests. And if we move on to our uh, program, thank you. If we move on to the program, you'll be you'll see that we'll be talking about three uh, excellent data sets. We have the Orient 11 data set, the Exalt 3 data set, and the Checkmate 743 data set, potentially practice changing trials. I'm joined by three colleagues this uh, evening who will be discussing each of these trials in, uh, uh, in turn. The first of my colleagues is uh, Dr. Alistair Greystoke. He's a consultant uh, medical oncologist at the uh, Freeman Hospital in Newcastle and senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle. So uh, without further ado, uh, Alistair, it'd be great to uh, have your uh, take on the data, the Orient 11 study. Thank you. So uh, I'd like to thank uh, the members of, of BTOG for inviting me to talk about this interesting abstract that was the first presentation on Saturday afternoon. And this was the Orient 11 study, which is a randomized controlled study, adding in scintillamab, which is a PD-1, to standard chemotherapy of platinum and pemetrexed in the frontline therapy for patients uh, with non-squamous lung cancer. It was a study that was performed at 47 hospitals in China. The study schema is pretty much as you'd expect from a study of this type. So patients had to be untreated, stage 3B or 4, fit with performance data 0 to 1, no GEGFR or ALK abnormality, and able to provide a PDL1 uh, sample. They were randomized in a 2 to 1 fashion to standard chemotherapy with platinum or pemetrexed for four cycles and maintenance treatment with pemetrexed and either scintillamab for up to two years or placebo. Importantly, patients who are randomized to placebo in the standard of care arm, if they had central confirmation of progression, could cross over onto monotherapy scintillamab afterwards within the study. The stratification factors were as you would expect, but in particular, I'll point to you that the PDL1 was stratified at PDL1 of less than 1% or more than 1%, not at the 50% mark. The primary endpoint, which I will talk about later, was progression-free survival with a range of other secondary endpoints, including overall survival. They treated uh, just under 400 patients, and interestingly, it seemed that they screened over 800 patients to get those patients. I haven't been able to find out why the patients dropped out. I imagine a number of it was given the patient population, either EGFR or ALK status. Importantly, I will point out that it, within the study, 35 patients were able to cross over to monotherapy sinilatilumab. In the paper, they've described that another six patients have crossed over outside the study, leading to about two-thirds of the patients who've progressed on standard of care chemotherapy, now receiving monotherapy immunotherapy. You will see that there are a number of patients ongoing with treatment in both arms. The baseline characteristics as you uh, are very much as you might expect, although there was a high preponderance of males with three quarters of patients being male in both arms. 
you'll see also that three quarters of patients received carboplatin rather than cisplatin. What is different about this study is the high rate of never smokers, about 35%, which I'll discuss later on. This was a positive study that met its primary endpoint. So there was an increase in progression-free survival from five months to just under nine months with a hazard ratio of 0.482, which is heavily significant. And you can see the curves start to split even at the first scan and seem to be staying apart for as long as we have follow-up. This improvement in progression-free survival was seen across all key subtypes with the only subtype that doing particularly well, as you'd expect, the patients who had the high PDL1 expression where the hazard ratio was down at 0.31. But otherwise, all the subgroups seemed relatively equivalent. Looking at the PFS curves across the different PDL1 expression, you will see that uh, for uh, the high PDL1 of more than 50%, the curves are coming apart nicely and staying apart with a median survival that's not yet been reached in this arm. But results, as we've seen in other studies, that in, uh, are not quite so promising, but with significant improvements, including in the 1% to 49% and the less than 1% uh, uh, data. But in both these arms, the improvement in progression-free survival was on the order of about two months. We do have some overall survival data, but it is very immature. The median follow-up in the study is only about eight months. You can see that the curves do look to be separating, and we hope they, they will continue to stay apart. Uh, there was a positive hazard ratio at 0.609, which was uh, statistically significant. But um, this is very immature data, um, and I think it's probably too early to comment too much on this at present. As we've seen with other chemotherapy and immunotherapy studies, the response rate was higher. It was only 30% in the standard of care arm, and it went up to 50%, just over 50% in the combination arm, including some complete responses. Also, interestingly to my mind, responses seem to be quicker in the combination arm with a median time to response of only one and a half months, while it tended to be at second scan that they've met formal response in the standard of care arm. So higher and quicker response rate with some complete responses seen. When you add in another drug, obviously it's important to think about potential toxicity. So this is the chemotherapy toxicities that were demonstrated in more than 20% of the patients. And you will see that there was no real major differences across all these chemotherapy toxicities that we saw. As you also may have expected, we did see an increased uh, instance of immune-related adverse events. Here described uh, those that occurred in more than 2% of any patients. Most of these are ones that would not particularly worry us, such as hypothyroidism or a low-grade increased amylase. I was slightly worried about the high rates of immune-mediated pneumonitis, but as you can see, again, most of the increase was in grade 1 to 2 occurrence. And there was also some increase in rash that can be troublesome in patients that are on this chemotherapy and immunotherapy combination. So we've seen a number of trials in this setting uh, uh, looking at different immunotherapies added on to first-line chemotherapy. And the question that this led to me to ask is, when do we need another drug in class? Obviously, if we can see improved efficacy or improved tolerability, that is of, of importance to our patients. Sometimes it can be helpful when there's a borderline effect and we need a number of studies to the, uh, enable in a meta-analysis 
to give us confidence that this is a genuine effect and is not a statistical fluke. Sometimes we only have data in a certain population that may not be applicable to the patients we treat in the real world. And that can be, it can be useful to have another trial that can give us more data in the setting. Different agents sometimes have different mechanisms of resistance, and that can also be helpful in, in, in determining which one we should use in our patients when thinking about subsequent treatment options. And these drugs are expensive, and we would hope that the more drugs we have available, that it may lead to competition and hopefully improved costs and therefore improved availability to our patients within a national healthcare system. So how does that work out for this study? Well, this is a slide from Dr. Nagasaka, who uh, discussed this presentation on Saturday, and she compared it to Keynote 189, the carboplatin and pemetrexed study, which was relatively equivalent, but has more follow-up. What you will see is very similar improvements in response rate and progression-free survival uh, that are very similar, again, both in the standard of care arm and in the experimental arm, with improvements in both from approximately five to approximately nine months and very similar hazard ratios. As I'd commented earlier, we, we haven't seen the survival data, but again, the toxicity rates looked very similar. So there doesn't seem to be any major difference between efficacy or toxicity from this regimen, as far as we can tell at present to the Keynote 189. What is important is this slide looking at a different patient group. Obviously, this was a study carried out in China and had a 100% East Asian population enrolled. This compares to some of the other studies which had uh, enrollment of patients who have East Asian ethnicity of between 1 and 14%. So it gives us valuable data in this population. Equally important, most of the studies uh, that were previously seen have had relatively low rates of non-smokers, somewhere around 10 to 15%. And we haven't been clear of the benefits in this population. This study, almost a third of patients were never smokers. So... My thoughts about this study is, whilst it doesn't show us any advances in efficacy or tolerability, and we're already confident that adding in immunotherapy to chemotherapy could improve certainly progression-free survival, we do now have data in another population, the East Asian population, the never smoker population, that can be helpful in our discussions with patients. Whether this will lead to increased competition and that will lead to increased costs, I think is the discussion maybe afterwards or over a beer in the bar. I would criticize, I think the trial design is appropriate apart from the use of PFS as a primary endpoint. Patients who, receive, who are fit to receiving chemotherapy, most of them should progress to immunotherapy in the second line setting. And really seeing whether we get an increased progression-free survival may not be the most appropriate endpoint here. And I've shown this in this bar here, that patient who receives chemotherapy and immunotherapy, you might get similar outcomes from receiving chemotherapy as, as receiving chemotherapy and immunotherapy together but at the risk of increased side effects. And I think studies of this type, we should be looking at overall survival endpoints, maybe long-term survival rates, although these do take longer to accumulate. And what about thinking about patient reported or payer outcomes, such as quality of life, healthcare usage, and health economics. So we have another chemoimmunotherapy combination, which is unlikely to be licensed in the UK, certainly unlikely to be funded in the UK, but we do have valuable data in the East Asian population. What do we really actually need? Well, we need to know how to treat these patients when they progress on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. We need a better understanding of the biology in this setting and newer treatments. One thing that's very clear, difficult in my practice is knowing when to change therapy in patients on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And I will point out that in this blinded study, 35% of patients were treated beyond progressive disease on the placebo arm. 
which we would never do if we were just giving chemotherapy alone, if we thought we were just giving chemotherapy alone. We have difficulty determining the etiology of side effects when patients are on multiple drugs. 37% of patients on the placebo arm were said by the investigators have had an immune-related adverse event. And importantly, going forward, we need to know which patients we can miss out chemotherapy for or give less chemotherapy for, how it interacts with tumor genomics, although EGFR and ALK were excluded from the study, uh, other genes were not tested, including things like BRAF, RET, or some of the genes associated with immunotherapy resistance, such as SDK11. And what I really want to know is how I can deliver treatments like this or get the best outcomes for my patient population, which are older, have multiple comorbidities and frailer than the patients that have been enrolled in the clinical trials we've seen to date. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and take questions. Alistair, thank you very much for that great overview. And uh, uh, you're welcome, uh, attendees, to type in your questions, uh, which I will then attempt to pass on to uh, Alistair to uh, uh, get his input. So whilst you're thinking of something interesting to ask, uh, Alistair, can, Alistair, can you tell me what is scintillimab? I've never heard of this drug before Saturday. Uh, uh, just educate me. So it's an anti-PD-1 therapy like nivolumab and pembrolizumab. It is licensed uh, for treatment of uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma in China. Um, it does have slightly different binding than nivolumab and pembrolizumab, both of which also have slightly different binding from each other. And preclinically, it does have different efficacy in animal models. But as I've said, the clinical data looks very similar to pembrolizumab, maybe slightly different to nivolumab, but that was a different trial design. So if I can ask you about uh, the trial design, obviously you've compared it very much to Keynote 189, which is generally what most of us are using our chemo IO combinations on the back of. Um, were there any major differences in the trial design between Keynote 189 and Orient 11? I think the crossover was better in this study. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it was done in a more rigorous manner. As I remember, Keynote 189 had dual primary endpoints of progression-free and overall survival. Uh, as I said, I, I'm not even sure progression-free survival should be a primary endpoint, but I certainly would have gone for dual primary endpoints. Um, but uh, uh, otherwise, they're very similar in allowing platinum pemetrex said, although in both studies we saw carboplatin as a dominant uh, thing, using maintenance pemetrex said throughout and using um, IO in a, in a, in a randomised double-blind fashion. But the crossover was, was different and was better in this study. That has been criticised in the 189 study. So I want to focus in on the never smokers uh, a little bit. There were a lot of never smokers because I guess the biology of lung cancer is different in... Uh, East Asia, uh, those patients seem to have a better benefit. We sort of signal for this in 189 as well, but not in 024 and 042. Yeah. Uh, so chemo immuno seems to have a benefit. Uh, who are these never smokers? Because EGFR and ALPS were excluded. So who are they? And do we really believe that this is a preferential treatment for them? And I guess the subsequent question is then, if we're using chemo pembro for the UK patients, should we be preferentially using that for the never smokers? Too many questions for, uh, for you to ask, but you, you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, so, so first off, who are these patients? Well, we don't know. I'm hoping that we'll see some more genetic analysis from these patients because, it, it, um, you know, in my never smokers who don't have EGFR out, you see a huge range of abnormalities. 
some treatable with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors such as BRAF and RET, some uh, not presently treatable. So, you know, I see never smokers with KRAS mutations, sometimes with SDK11 mutations. Um, sometimes you never even determine the underlying mutation in that never smoker population. So I would love to see a, a, a biological study of these. Um, should we be giving the immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy uh, for the never smokers? So my answer to that is yes, um, if, if they're well enough. And I, I think the rationale is that in these fitter patients, you are, you know, the, these patients have metastatic disease, you're, you're not going to cure them, but equally, are they, you going to allow them to progress and die on your watch without ever having received immunotherapy? And we know that these patients may do less well with single agent immunotherapy. So let's give it with chemotherapy, give them the best shot. It does mean that when they progress, you um, have less options. Um, and I think that's why I was trying to highlight we need better options for these patients, either genomically driven or with new some of the new antibody drug, antibody drug conjugates coming through. Um, but I, I would say that for a fit non-smoker in the absence of a treatable molecular abnormality, um, I would be treating them with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I don't think in this study they appropriately excluded all the treatable molecular abnormalities like ROS1, BRAF, et cetera, that we have now have access to treatments in, in the UK. Can I come back to you on that? Uh, on that, I mean, some would argue that the risk of giving chemo immuno to the never smokers up front is if you've missed an EGFR mutation, uh, false negatives, then you then end up giving osimertinib after pembrolizumab, and we know that that's a pretty toxic combo. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so you need to be you need to be clear, um, and we need so number one thing is we need to get the results back for these patients' molecular profiles quickly. You know, the median eighteen days turnaround uh, shown by the National Lung Cancer Audit is not good enough. Um, to my mind, in, in future, it would be nice to have a joint tissue blood approach because that gives you confidence. Most of these patients do have circulating free DNA, and if you miss it with one, you pick it up with another. But, um, you know, I, you, can't you can't test and retest hoping they're going to have an EGFR mutation. You do just need to get on. Um, so I, I would make sure you get your test back, get your test back properly, reflex testing. If you can do tissue and liquid up front, that's great. Some of us have access to it, some of us don't. But if you don't find anything treatable, get on with treating them, you know, and then because you need to give them appropriate treatment, lung cancer will move, patient's performance status will deteriorate. And if you're wanting to give them chemotherapy and immunotherapy together, you want them to be fit. Thank you. And I guess uh, a reminder to the uh, English res uh, registrants that uh, NHS England have made uh, dabrafenib trametinib combination available for BRAF V600 mutant uh, patients. And so now it's very much beholden on us to ensure we've got BRAF genotypes coming through as well, Alistair. Uh, you'd be in agreement with that. Completely agree. Uh, Alistair, one question that's come through is about PS2 patients. So these were excluded from this trial and have by and large been excluded from all trials. Do these patients benefit from checkpoint inhibitors? So there's been a couple of nice studies that have come out recently, including one this week of patients with performance status 2 receiving first-line pembrolizumab in the high PD-L1 expression. And I guess those are the patients you'd like, you'd like to avoid chemotherapy. Um, unfortunately, those results mostly have been disappointing. Uh, the Italian study, they pointed out that those patients who were performance status 2 due to comorbidities actually did quite well. It was the patients who were performance status 2 due to tumor burden, presumably have high levels of cytokines, a, a very, you know, 
poor form of uh, tumorigenic inflammation that these patients do not do well with single agent immunotherapy. I think the issue about trying to give chemo immunotherapy to the performance status two is it's a difficult treatment to deliver. Um, I would love to see the ability uh, within the NHS to maybe give one cycle of chemotherapy to patients who are poor performance status due to disease burden and if they pick up to add in the immunotherapy. Um, but I, I don't see that coming in anytime soon. Unfortunately, we do not have that flexibility within the NHS. Okay, thank you, Alistair. And in the interest of time, we'll close your presentation and I'd like to thank you very much uh, for your efforts. Uh, I'd like to welcome our second uh, speaker uh, for the evening. Our second speaker is uh, Professor Fiona Blackhall. Uh, Professor Blackhall is a consultant medical oncologist at the Christie Hospital in Manchester and uh, Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Manchester. Uh, all of you online will know that uh, Professor Blackhall is one of the first people that started treating alt-positive patients in the UK and has been seminally influential in being a co-author in the profile trials in the early days of uh, crizotinib in alt-positive disease. And therefore, I'm absolutely delighted, Fiona, to welcome you here to tell us about the EXALT3 study. And apparently we have a new drug called Ensartinib. So over to you, Fiona. Thank you very much, um, Sanjay. It's a real pleasure to be participating in this BTOG symposium and to be discussing this phase three study. Alistair just highlighted the importance of molecular profiling. And this study is um, strictly for patients without positive non-small cell lung cancer, a phase three randomized study of insartinib versus crizotinib. And sartinib is a second generation ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and crizotinib, of course, is the first in class, first generation ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So, this was a fairly straightforward study design and sartinib versus crizotinib with a one to one randomization. Patients had ALK positive, non small cell uh, confirmed by central confirmation using fish, but of course, we usually go ahead with the results of immunohistochemistry in our everyday practice. And that is equally valid compared to confirmation with fish. Patients with stage 3B and 4 disease, patients with performance status 2 were eligible uh, alongside 0 and 1. No prior ALK inhibitor was permitted and less than or equal to one prior chemotherapy regimen. Stratification factors, then prior chemotherapy performance status, geographical location, and most importantly for these drugs, presence or absence of brain metastases at baseline. There was no crossover allowed on study, and the trial was fully accrued as of November 2018. The primary endpoint was a blinded independent review committee assessed median progression-free survival by RESIST and quite standard secondary endpoints uh, of note overall response rate and then response rate intracranially. So these are the demographics and baseline characteristics. And as you can see, these characteristics are what we would expect for an ALK positive 
population, the median age in the 50s, younger than our lung cancer population in general, but extending at the, at the upper bound to um, octo and uh, genarians and 90 years old in the chrysotinib arm, so elderly patients included, about 20% um, approaching 20% greater than 65 years. About half were, were male or female, and about half were Asian ethnic origin. The majority, over 90%, equal performance status, zero and one. And then the majority, never smokers, uh, current former smokers, about 40%, many of these will most likely have stopped smoking some decades ago and or been light uh, former smokers. Very few patients had had prior radiotherapy to the brain, but about a third on each arm had brain metastases at baseline and uh, 24 and 29% respectively had prior chemotherapy. So this is the primary endpoint, progression-free survival. This is a positive study. The median progression-free survival, 25.8 months for ensartinib and for crizotinib, 12.7 months, which is what we would expect for crizotinib. Hazard ratio, 0.51, and highly statistically significant. So are we surprised by this result? Well, we knew early on in the development of crizotinib that uh, there were characteristic patterns of progression and mechanisms of resistance. In particular, isolated CNS progression and then kinase domain mutations in the ALK tyrosine kinase domain. Another mechanism for progression is epithelial mesenchymal transition, which is also potentially targeted by ensartinib. So our second generation ALK inhibitors were all developed to have better CNS penetrance, to be more potent inhibitors of ALK tyrosine kinase, and to be active against crizotinib resistance mutations that emerge under treatment pressure on crizotinib. So what we need to ask ourselves and what our patients might ask us is, whether there is a best second generation ALK inhibitor. And here in a very simplified summary so that we can uh, compare uh, across trials, given the caveats of cross trial comparison, uh, but still compare broadly where these second generation ALK inhibitors are at, you can see here that the response rates are broadly similar. The progression-free survival is similar for electinib, brigatinib, and ansartinib at least 24 or 25 months. I have not included on this slide some updated analyses, more mature analyses that push the progression-free survival out further for electinib, but without showing you the curve, so you'll have to just imagine in your mind's eye, there is a relative flattening of the curve uh, at the, the 24 to 30 uh, months. And so this makes the exact assessment, the point estimate of the median survival quite difficult. 
So brigatinib mature data still awaited and sartanib more mature data still awaited. But on the first announcement of these studies, the PFS is, is around this benchmark and certainly superior to the 16 months for seritinib with the ASCEND4 trial, not against crizotinib, but against chemotherapy. And the important thing in all of these second generation ALK inhibitor studies is that crizotinib has been very consistent in its performance of a PFS 9.8 to 12.7 months, response rate about the same as the second generations. Then let's look at the intracranial response rate. It was in most studies nearer 20% than in one study uh, 50%. And here for the second generations, intracranial response rate, 73%, 81%, 78% higher. And then for ansartinib, 64%. So numerically lower, what do we think of that? Well, I would caution here, low numbers. We have 11 patients who had measurable brain metastases on ensartinib, 19 on crizotinib. And so I think it is difficult to truly suggest that ensartinib might have lower intracranial activity. So let's move on now to side effects. And I have dropped seritinib off here. I have compared those uh, second generation ALK inhibitors that have surpassed that, that 20, 24 month PFS in the randomized trials. And can we tease them apart then on the basis of side effects and use that to select a best one for our patients? Broadly, serious uh, treatment-related AEs are comparable across the different trials. Fewer dose reductions, potentially for electinib. Dose discontinuations, however, also similar. A point here about transaminases in our everyday clinics, we see this often, and they are a class effect very common for all our TKIs. It is, however, often difficult to separate paper toxicities from clinically significant toxicities. And then I think it's quite interesting that despite the very similar efficacy and potency of these uh, drugs, the side effect profiles do differ. There, there are distinctions between them. And what I want to do today is draw your attention to those for ensartinib, our, our topic in hand, where rash, pruritus, and pyrexia uh, were top uh, reported AEs, quite different from electinib and brigatinib in that regard. Drilling down on that further, we can see here versus crizotinib from uh, Dr. Horne's phase three study, ALT increase, AST increase get first and third place, and then rash in 70% of patients. The majority in green here, grade one, less grade two, but about 10% grade three. And we know for patients on these generally very well tolerated inhibitors and for a median exceeding uh, 20 months that rash, even at grade one, is a nuisance and a problem. So where are we at the moment in our treatment landscape for out-positive non-small cell lung cancer in the UK? This is our nice algorithm from April 2020. 
And again, it highlights the importance to subtype your patient to know the molecular uh, subtype of their non-small cell lung cancer. For ALT positive, we first had crizotinib, it remains a first line option, then seritinib, and then electinib. In the second line setting on progression, we have brigatinib and seritinib approved and funded following progression on crizotinib, but not following progression for electinib or seritinib. So for the two uh, second generation first line options currently, on progression, we move to chemotherapy-based regimens. Despite COVID taking uh, all of our attention through May, lorlatinib, a third generation ALK inhibitor, was uh, recommended by NICE for previously treated ALK positive non-small cell lung cancer. Following electinib or seritinib, given as the first alptizing kinase inhibitor, so second line, or following crizotinib as the first and at least one other ALK TKI third line. Just before the World Lung Symposium last weekend, there was a press release for a randomized phase three study of lorlatinib compared with crizotinib, the so-called CROWN trial, it has met its primary progression-free survival endpoint. We have not yet seen any numbers for that study, but it is positive. And back in May, the US uh, Food and Drug Administration approved brigatinib for first-line treatment of out-positive non-small cell based on the trial data that I showed a few slides back. So, the question that we need to really address for all of these inhibitors, whichever we use, is that eventually progression does occur. And there are a variety of mechanisms. I want to focus on some of the points from this very nice slide from Dr. Christine Lovely's discussion. It highlights a number of important points. This first is a patient who was treated with crisotinib and who developed disease progression was uh, assessed for ALK tyrosine kinase mutations and a 1152V mutation was present. And Sartanib was commenced. There was a resist response and the level of the mutation in the blood disappeared. The mutation level then uh, started to rise. Uh, and in fact, it, it was a new uh, mutation, continued radiographic response here but then here, disease progression and the emergence of another out mutation, E1210K. So in this um, chart, this grid here, this is a list of out tyrosine kinase mutations that occur on an exposure to an ALK inhibitor. And along the top here, it's a very small font, Crizotinib, seritinib, ensartinib, electinib, brigatinib, lorlatinib. And where there is a red, there is resistance. Where there is green, there is sensitivity. And the uh, amber, somewhere in between. So if we look at the E1210K that developed in this patient on ensartinib, we can see that we have red, amber, red, red, amber, green for lorlatinib. So only lorlatinib would be expected 
to have activity now in this patient. And when we look at the lorlatinib column, then lorlatinib has more greens than any and a light amber. And so this third generation uh, ALK TKI might, might potentially be our best in class. We don't yet know. And I'm going to just highlight this, this anecdote, always dangerous to guide our, our treatment algorithms according to anecdotes, but this remains a really fascinating case published four years ago now by Alice Shaw, who really led the field globally in the development of these agents. And this is a patient who um, received crizotinib for about 18 months, then developed resistance and was given seritinib for a short time. Resistance was put on a, an early phase trial, then was put on to chemotherapy, then crizotinib was tried again and it was not effective. And at that point, uh, before uh, receiving lorlatinib, there was a very heavy disease burden in the liver. You can see the response here to lorlatinib, a duration of response, then progression, a further biopsy at this time, and again, at a point where the patient had a heavy disease burden, uh, revealed a resistance mutation, L1198F, and this mutation turns out to uh, change the chemistry of the alptyrosine kinase uh, domain uh, again to resensitize it to crizotinib. So the patient then got a meaningful clinical benefit from a re-challenge for a third time with crizotinib having developed this uh, mutation. So I'm going to close now with this slide and my take-home message today, which is that ensartinib from this trial is clearly another first-line option for out-positive non-small cell. I'm a little concerned about the rash, but even with the rash aside, it is clear from our second-generation inhibitors that we don't yet have a, a winner, a definite winner. And this is a, a patient of mine who was diagnosed shortly after participating in the Amsterdam uh, Marathon some years ago. And for our patients, we need to continue to evolve our treatment algorithms to be sure that we can select the right ALK inhibitor at the right time. There are a lot of questions. I've got three here. First has a plateau let's say a median PFS of about 24 months, has that been reached for second generation ALK inhibitors? Will the results for the third generation drug lorlatinib in the CROWN trial exceed this plateau? Will we need to do a head-to-head -head of lorlatinib versus second generations? Is that the right approach for first line? Or do we need to get cleverer if we can, and can we use our current menu of ALT-TKIs, recycle them for use in a highly individualized and precise way for each patient according to the ALT-resistance mutation that the patient develops on treatment. There's a caveat there because not all patients develop an ALT-resistance mutation. There are other mechanisms of resistance uh, that are more complex potentially to tackle. So 
Ongoing studies continue. Second line, brigatinib is being compared head-to-head -head versus electinib. And then we have some complex uh, studies that are looking to precisely match the ALK resistance mechanism with efficacy to an ALK inhibitor. And let's not forget too, tackling oligometastatic progression, our Cancer Research UK study that is up and running again post-COVID, the HALT trial of stereotactic radiotherapy for sites of oligometastatic progression. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Fiona. Uh, great uh, presentation. A, a couple of quick uh, questions and then we'll close. Um, one question that's come in is, is it ethical really not to have crossover these days uh, with our trials? Again, we have another trial which doesn't allow uh, crossover. We'll hear Crown, which won't allow crossover in the future. Is it ethical? It's a really good question. And uh, implicit in the question, I, I would challenge not allowing crossover. I didn't present the, uh, at present, very immature overall survival data for this phase three. But uh, there is no significant difference for crisotinib or insartinib at this point in time. We've seen that for the other second generation studies against uh, crisotinib. And that is because patients are managing to get on to another therapy, most usually an ALK-TKI. But until we have that piece tightly matched and integrated in a trial alongside resistance mutations, then we're going to struggle to really optimize our care paths for our patients. And we have all these choices now. We'll have entartanib coming along. We'll have soon, hopefully, brigatinib if that gets funding approval. Eventually, if Crown is positive, we might have frontline lorlatinib. How are we going to choose? So, I, I don't know. And uh, what it might boil down to, to some extent, dare I say it, is uh, not just clinical effectiveness, tolerability, but cost effectiveness of these agents. But what we lack in the UK compared to other countries is to be able to do some individualization and to do molecular profiling and select uh, according to resistance, mutation, presence or absence or the exact nature of it. So how we work collectively with the evidence base, with NICE, with our regulatory authorities to get more flexibility and be able to choose um, for an individual patient also according to how they tolerate our, our first line selection. If there is a, an intolerance, being able to switch to one of the others. Um, we need that flexibility. That's the, the next step for us. And I know that many of us are working behind the scenes to try and ensure that we have these options coming through. So uh, with that, uh, and in the interest of time, thank you very much, uh, Fiona, for your excellent uh, presentation. Uh, I'm now going to move on to our third presentation of the evening and welcome uh, to the webinar, my colleague, uh, Dr. Riaz Shah, who is a consultant medical oncologist at the Kent Cancer Center. He's an expert in mesothelioma and has been treating mesothelioma for many years and has lots of experience with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So Riaz, you're going to tell us about the Checkmate 743 trial. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to speak. Welcome everyone, I hope you're all well. Um, it gives me uh, 
great pleasure to present uh, the Checkmate 743 study. This is a very, very important study in mesothelioma. So I'm going to do a bit of background, then go through the trial and give you my thoughts. So I want to ask for your forgiveness initially. You know, a randomized control trial is a randomized control trial and a well done randomized control trial is a very important bit of comparative data. In this disease, we only have one registered treatment, uh, uh, cisplatin pemetrexed first line from a trial that recruited patients 20 years ago. And it's very important to remember that. And when you're discussing anything, you have to put things in context of the different trials in that area. And so I'm comparing trials that have been conducted over two decades. And over two decades, so much has changed in terms of radiology, histology, supportive medicines, uh, and so everything I say, you need to caveat with with that understanding that thing, you know, this data set in this disease stretches back a long time. So let's just go through the basics first. So cisplatin pemetrexed is the treatment that we give on the back of this emphasis trial published in 2003. And as I say, patients were recruited into this trial in 1999 to 2001. Cisplatin versus cisplatin said very simple. And Things to note about this trial, they're all good PS, non-surgical candidates with pleural mesothelioma. It's only cisplatin, no carboplatin. Cycles were given until progression or, or maximum tolerability. So in the cis-pem arm, median number of six cycles were given uh, and up to 12 cycles in the range. So not something that we would do in standard practice right now. And if you look at the results of this trial, uh, that's the overall survival curve. So the median survival went from 10 to 13.3 months. And I think now in the world of mesothelioma, in, in the world of immunotherapy, medians get a bit difficult, hazard ratios get a bit difficult. And one of the things I think does give a lot of insight into what's going on is landmarks. And I think we do need to look at landmarks a bit more, uh, particularly when looking at immunotherapy trials. So if we just look, and this is not published, this is just me uh, drawing lines on the curves from the paper. Roughly, I estimate that about 20% of patients in this trial were alive at uh, 24 months. So that's the emphasis trial. There was another trial done around the same time, 2000 to 2003, comparing cisplatin to cisplatin raltotrexed, and it showed very similar results, a significant improvement in uh, overall survival, the numbers, absolute numbers, are a little bit less than the emphasis trial, but the landmarks are fairly similar. Now, this drug was never licensed, uh, never approved, and it's something most of us have completely forgotten about. A really uh, an interesting lesson on what can happen when you don't have a big pharma company backing your drug. Um, now, there's one other very important trial that we need to uh, understand to understand what's going on, and that's the MAPS trial. So this is a French academic study comparing chemotherapy with cisplatin pemetrexed for up to six cycles, compared to chemotherapy with cisplatin pemetrexed plus bevacizumab. Bevacizumab given for up to six cycles with the chemo and then continued as maintenance until uh, uh, progression or tolerability. This was done about a decade ago. So 10 years later, we do this trial, patients randomized from 2008 to 2000, uh, 2014. And if you look at the results from the published trial, it's significant favoring the addition of bevacizumab by a relatively modest amount. The median goes from 16 to 18.8 .8 months. Updated data from this trial was presented at World Lung in 2019. And if again, you look at the landmarks, what you see is the doublet of cisplatin pemetrexed delivers 63% 12 month 
and 30% 24-month uh, uh, survival, which is really interesting because that's, you know, 10% more people alive at tw 24 months with exactly the same treatment 10 years later. So that's sort of stage migration and changes in treatment. Um, now, let's get on to Checkmate 743. So talking about uh, Checkmate 743 here, so this is a randomized trial unresectable pleural mesothelioma, no prior systemic therapy, fit patients with a good performance status. We've got 605 patients randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either conventional standard treatment, cisplatin or carboplatin here for up to six cycles. And the investigational arm was immunotherapy, but immunotherapy with a slight difference to what we're generally used to in thoracic oncology, this is double immunotherapy. This is an anti-PD-1, nivolumab, with an anti-CTLA-4, ipilimumab. Ipilimumab is given every six weeks, NIVO every two weeks, and patients can continue this until progression or maximum tolerability for up to two years. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Look at the baseline demographics of the patients in this trial. You will see that they're well-balanced. You will see that about 40% of patients have a PS of zero, 40% of patients were never smokers, Two thirds of patients were epithelioid, one third of sorry, two three quarters of patients were epithelioid, and a quarter of patients were non epithelioid. And if you look at PDL1 expression, about 20 to 25% of patients had no PDL1 expression, and 80 odd percent of patients had PDL1 expression. Slightly different from what we see in lung cancer, where probably 40 to 50% of patients that we see with non small cell lung cancer have. Uh, less than 1% PBL1. So this is the big slide, the money shot slide. This is the overall survival in the entire group of 600 patients. And what you can see here is that there is a significant benefit for the combination immunotherapy arm over chemotherapy. If you look at the landmark at 24 months, 41% of people alive versus 27. The median's gone from 14 to 18 months. The hazard ratio is 0.74. The confidence interval is, is below one everything adds up to a positive trial. So this is excellent news. If you look at the subgroups uh, within uh, this trial of patients, uh, what you see is a general trend favoring immunotherapy over chemotherapy, pretty much across all the parameters. The two that I think we do need to focus on specifically are histology. You see a massive benefit in the has point estimate for non-epithelioid tumors, for epithelioid tumors, the um, point estimate is still favoring immunotherapy, but the confidence interval crosses one, so it's not statistically significant. And if you look at PDL1 expression, uh, PDL1 expression, certainly the presence of expression favors immunotherapy. The absence of PDL1 expression, I mean, it's very close to one there, but it is just to the left, just suggesting that in PDL1 negative patients, there may be a slight benefit to the immunotherapy, although those confidence intervals are big. It's only 20% of the patients, so the confidence interval spread is quite wide there. Now look at those subgroups uh, in terms of the curves. It's quite interesting because if you look at epithelioid patients, you can see that um, uh, look at the 24-month uh, landmark, 42% of patients alive. Epithelioid, 38% of patients alive, non-epithelioid. There doesn't seem to be much difference in the curves for the patients given immunotherapy, but chemotherapy, you see a big difference. You see that chemotherapy, non-epithelioid, uh, is performing, well, frankly, abysmally compared to, uh, compared to immunotherapy, whereas in the epithelioid group, 
there is a numerical difference, 16.5 to 18.7. You can see that the immunotherapy treatment arm is tracking above. So there is a difference, but it's not statistically significant. And if you look at PDL1 expression, similarly, the presence of PDL1 expression, you see this difference that is uh, robustly different, 13.3 to 18 months, positive hazard ratio, confidence interval less than one. Uh, the 24-month uh, landmark, 28 up to 41%, so clear difference there. Much, much less obvious in the PDL1 negative uh, uh, group, where you know there isn't much difference between these curves. But again, you know there is a sort of point estimate at 24 months, slightly favouring immunotherapy, and you see this slight crossover of the curves, which I'll reflect on a bit later. But that is not statistically significant. So let's just look at these. So we started with a trial emphasis 20 years ago that delivered 20% uh, people alive at 24 months with chemo, median survival of 13.3, exactly the same treatment 10 years later in the MAPS, we get 30% alive at 24 months and the median is 16.1 months. And then we move to this study here, Checkmate 743. All of these figures are for the chemo arm. And you see that 27% of patients are alive at 24 months, 14% median survival. And you see this detriment in the non-epithelioid, but pretty much similar figures uh, for um, all the other subgroups. You do note this difference, PDL1 negative, PDL1 positive for chemo, 13.3, 16.5 months, does slightly imply that there may be some sort of prognostic issue with PDL1 in this disease. That's just hypothesis generating. Look, oh, can I go back a slide, please? I don't know how to do that. Um, look at immunotherapy. You see a very consistent signal. We're seeing consistently, regardless of histology, regardless of PDL1, the numbers are consistently in the high 60s or 70%, 24-month survival around 40% consistently, median survival 18 almost consistently. It's very impressive, very uniform data that we're seeing. So what are the conclusions of the authors? It met its primary endpoint. There was a survival benefit for NIBO-IP versus chemo, regardless of histology. The PDL1 data was descriptive. They don't want to make any firm conclusions from that. I haven't shown you the safety data because time is of the essence. And essentially, the safety data shows no new signals uh, in terms of toxicity differences between, you know, for immunotherapy and chemo. We've been using these treatments. We, we know what the toxicities are. And so their conclusion is this should be considered as a new standard of care. What do I think? I think that, uh, well, I agree with those conclusions. I think that if the reimbursed NIVO-IPI is the first-line standard of care, we're reimbursed, particularly in the non-epithelioid tumours. I don't think PDL1 is discriminatory enough to select therapy to say to a PDL1 negative patient, you shouldn't have immunotherapy. But the key thing, if you go back to that slide, is if you look at the MAPS data, um, you'll see that that matches keynote at Checkmate 743 very closely in terms of the 24-month landmark and the overall survival. So this is a trial versus chemo, not chemo plus bevacizumab. Now, it's important to know that chemotherapy plus bevacizumab is not a licensed indication, but it is a standard of care in certain health economies, and for them, that may be an issue. Um, the only other thing I want to point out in small print here is the PFS curve 
this I'm not sure I haven't shown it or dwelled on it, but it does show quite a significant crossover, similar to what we've seen with some other nivolumab trials that were presented early on in the in the lung cancer field, which implies that there is a subgroup, that there's a biological subgroup. Uh, in whom the immunotherapy perhaps isn't working so well and another subgroup in whom it's working very well. And the question is, can we pick those people out? So that's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much. Uh, Riaz, thank you very much for that excellent uh, presentation. So we have a, a positive trial in mesothelioma, uh, the first uh, randomized phase three positive trial that I can re recall in my professional lifetime. Uh, so is this a new standard of care uh, for mesothelioma, Riaz? Well, the standard of care in my clinic tomorrow or this next week is the same as ever. There's a, nothing's changed to date. Um, this is a uh, company-sponsored registration trial, and I have no doubt that this will result in Nivo Ipi getting a first-line license in this setting. Um, so, uh, I mean, if somebody walked into my clinic today and I could do anything I wanted, I think, yes, it would be a very reasonable option. Um, one of the questions that has come in is, uh, well, you know, you've you pointed out that actually the landmark was pretty similar to cis-hen-bev uh, from MAP. So why should we bother with Nivoipin? Well, cis-hen-bev isn't approved. I mean, the only people getting cis-hen-bev in this country with mesothelioma either have, are either getting it subsequent to first line and they're, they're paying for it, basically. Um, they're paying for it either through a legal claim or private insurance or their own pocket you know it is not a reimbursed treatment and it won't be a reimbursed treatment because it's not licensed um, and it's not going to be licensed because it is an off patent drug and there's no interest in pharma to to go and try and get a label for that drug in that indication so that is I think where Nivoipi is going to slot in because once this is registered then it becomes a on-label treatment because it's an on-label treatment, you can go to NICE, you can start a negotiation on price, and if, if BMS can get that deal done with NICE, this becomes a treatment on our, on our option list. And then if it uh, is on your option list, we've seen a massive benefit with the sarcomatoid, not so much a clear difference with the epithelioid. Where do you, I mean, should we be using it in our epithelioid patients? So the way I would think about this is there's the science and then there's the practicalities of treating people and giving patients the best treatment and the best options. If Nivoipi was approved in my practice tomorrow, let's hypothesize that that happens, then it would become my standard of care because the data for subsequent line immunotherapy is not that good. You know, it, it's much more higher response rate than chemo. But if you look at the PROMISE trial, there isn't a survival benefit to, um, to pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. So, and we have no reimbursed options for immunotherapy. So if NIVOEP becomes approved and NICE approved, then suddenly, this is the only pathway to immunotherapy for mesothelioma patients. And I think, you know, mesothelioma patients are a distinct subgroup to, to our normal practice. They, 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 many of them haven't smoked very much. They often quite a good number. Um, there are lots of frail ones, but a lot, a lot of patients are relatively young, relatively fit and really up for everything. So, um, this will become the only immunotherapy option for them that's reimbursed on the NHSR. I would have thought that regardless of pdl one regardless of histology, you would 
use your NIVO IP first uh, and then look at other options subsequently. So chemotherapy becomes a second line treatment. So in 743, there was a signal of efficacy with a pd one positive population, understanding this is an exploratory analysis. Do we now need to do pd one testing at all our mesos? So, you know, it's of academic interest, I accept that, but in clinical practice, if, if you look at non-small cell lung cancer, if you look at the keynote trials, the licensed labels are in specific PDL1 um, categories. Our reimbursed pathways for CDF say that you know you can give Pembro to someone who's one to forty-nine or, or greater than fifty. So there is a licensing and reimbursement-driven. Forget the science, but there's a licensing and reimbursement-driven uh, um, compulsion to do the test because the test and its result will directly reflect treatment changes. I think it's different here, and it really depends what NICE guidance says. But if not, I'm quite sure this will get a label, an email label across all subgroups. I'll be very surprised if this, if it's only in non-epithelial or only in pdl one positive patients. Assuming that happens and assuming NICE negotiations are done on that basis, and the drug company could say, we'll just pick the 80% who are pdl one positive for NICE, there's nothing to stop them doing that because all sorts of, you know, negotiations happen behind closed doors but it all depends what the nice guy if the nice guidance says or cdf guidance says it's got to be pdl1 we've got to test them outside of that i wouldn't bother because a pdl1 negative patient coming into my clinic i couldn't genuinely say to them you know this is not going to work and in you this it's not like an egfr test and we know that it's heterogeneous expression in these theory, and we know we it's know it's heterogeneous absolutely and 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 you know the other thing is toxicity. I've used NIVO IP quite a bit in trials and. Can I pause you there? Yeah? I'm going to ask you a question that's come in um, about whether we can extrapolate this to peritoneal meso. Well, who knows? I mean, let's do trials in peritoneal meso, but it's never going to happen. They're so rare um, that there've been almost no. You know, definitive chemo studies in peritoneal meso. So, if, if the um, approval was from NICE to any form of mesothelioma, not just plural, would you be comfortable uh, uh, with that? We, we give cispem to our peritoneal mesotheliomas without any trial data. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's all about fitness. Um, uh, we have to extrapolate. The the only way to treat there are no. If you just go by labels and you believe in labels, then um, you know, small cell lung cancer of the lung and small cell lung cancer of the liver or small cell lung cancer of the rectum generally treated in the same way. Um, um, I, I, you know, the only option for those patients is palliative care then, uh, which I think, you know, in, there are a subset of mesothelia and peritoneal patients that I have met who are actually quite fit and perfectly uh, capable of withstanding systemic treatment and immunotherapy. So yeah, I, I think it would be harsh to restrict it only to plural. I think it'd be very unfair. It's a very small group of patients who have very few other options. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so it brings us to the hour and I'd like to thank you Riaz for that presentation. And uh, importantly, I'd like to thank all our presenters for taking time out on their diary, getting the slides through very quickly since presentation on Saturday. 
and putting together this discussion. I wish we had more time to discuss things. If you, as an audience, want to hear more from experts discussing stuff, please be in touch with us at BTOG and we can organise webinars if that's of interest to you as a community. Otherwise, I'd very much like to welcome you to the next BTOG webinar, which will be all about ESMO. ESMO 2020 in an hour, another live event being held on Tuesday, the 22nd of September at 17.30. Mark it in your diary. Believe me, there's going to be lots to discuss. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention and look forward to seeing you again at the next BTOG webinar. Goodbye.